Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. I denne uge har jeg haft det helt fantastiske privilegium at tale med en mand, der har boet hele sit liv i Israel og som blev født før staten Israel var oprettet. Det er den 82-årige israelske filosof Avishai Magalit, som blev verdensberømt, da han i 1995 udgav bogen The Decent Society, som var en gennembrudsbog, fordi den på den ene side var en hård kritik af den vestlige liberalisme, altså troen på, at man kan opbygge et samfund kun ud fra lighed og frihed og helt uden broderskab, og samtidig også var en kritik af dyrkelsen af fælles værdier og troen på stammefællesskaber, som man kalder for kommunitarisme. Avishai Magalit fandt sin helt egen måde at beskrive det, der får et samfund til at hænge sammen på, som både var solidarisk over for fællesskabet, lagde et fundament for social retfærdighed og forsvarede individets ret til at realisere sig selv. Avishai Magalit har i de seneste år udgivet adskillige bøger, som alle sammen kredser om det samme, nemlig hvordan kan vi mennesker behandle hinanden ordentligt, og hvad er det, der gør, at vi ikke behandler hinanden ordentligt? Og hvordan skaber man et samfund, hvor der er betingelser for, at vi alle sammen kan opføre os ordentligt, når vi venter i kø på bussen? Good evening to our viewers here in Denmark. I am Rune Lykkeberg from Danish Newspaper Information. And especially good evening to you, Avishai Magalit, who's with us from Jerusalem. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We feel that it's such an honor and a privilege to talk to you. Your books have been very influential for me personally, but it's also books we've been discussing here in the newspaper all the way from The Decent Society and to your latest book on, on betrayal. They're so unique in their way of understanding social phenomena. Thank you. I'm both honored and flattered. Avishai Magalit har oplevet Israels historie. Han har været soldat og kæmpet for Israel under uafhængighedskrigen. Han har været i kibbutz. Han har troet på det socialistiske Israel. Han har drømt om det socialdemokratiske Israel. Han har protesteret voldsomt mod behandlingen af palæstinenserne. Han er alarmeret over udviklingen i Israel i de seneste årtier hen mod en mere og mere autoritær stat. Hvis man skal fortælle Israels historie, så skal det være som en eksistentiel historie af en, der har noget på spil og ser sig selv i det helt store perspektiv som en lille bitte brik i jødernes meget store historie. Håber I får fornøjelse af min samtale med Avishai Magalit. Well, I, I often think about the history of Israel, that you have a country with such a unique history, and you have people who lived through the entire history of that country. And you were born actually before the, uh, the state of Israel was established in what was then the British mandate of Palestine. And you must have lived through some incredible changes in your country. And I often think, how do you explain to yourself what happened to Israel through this entire history? I know it's a big question, but I'd just like to hear your reflections on it. Well, I'll tell you, What is my model for the changes that I went through in my life in Israel? And that's the story of the Jews. If you take the Jews, let's say in the 11th century, there were about a million Jews in the world. 90% of them lived under Islamic rulers and the language was Arabic. You take the Jews in 1939, 
there are 60 million of them in the world, and 90% of them speak Yiddish as their first language, which is a dialect of medieval German with Slavonic and Hebrew words. So those changes, this kind of radical change, I see it in, uh, in my microcosmos in Israel, those complete changes of language and, and the kind of people and the kind of aspirations uh, that I find and I found throughout my life. And uh, my parents came as idealists, both were socialists of the non-Bolshevik kind, they were ferociously anti-Bolsheviks. I mean, they were influenced by the anarchist thinking. And, uh, and they were Zionists. They thought that Palestine is their destination to live in, a, in the land of Israel. So they were both nationalist in a way and ended up as decent social democrats <laughs> of a benign kind. So I was raised in a highly charged political atmosphere. Politics was what we spoke from morning to night. And uh, politics was an extension basically of human psychology. What makes people tick? That was really the main question. My parents, my friends, youth movement, that was basically, there was very little interest, let's say, in nature. <laughs> but it was all about human beings and what makes them tick. And politics was the petri dish of human behavior. So that's, I think, uh, the kind of my background, uh, if, if, if that reveals something, yeah. It definitely does, because I remember, I'm from 74, and I remember when I was growing up in the 70s, there were a lot of leftist people dreaming about Israel and the kibbutz. This was, uh, it was one of the places where socialists in my parents' social circus, they placed their hopes. The, it, was, it was one of the places, so it had an enormous attraction, what was happening in, in Israel. And it's totally changed today because now we, we, the same people who at the time they saw their potential dreams being realized in Israel, they're now to a certain extent skeptical of what's happening politically. And that must have been a very big change for you in Israel as well. Absolutely. I mean, it was, there was something almost honorable to be an Israeli in those days. And I, himself, I myself was in a kibbutz for a while. And I still have a sister, she's 94. In, a, in one of the oldest kibbutz, kibbutzim in Israel. So we were very attached to the kibbutz movement. And at that time, there was a, a great hope, sort of a, a model socialist country can emerge. But the, the downfall of the labor movement that founded the state of Israel 
is very similar to the downfall, fortunately or unfortunately, of the communist countries. The public ownership in Israel was very similar, let's say, to public ownership of means of production in Poland, actually even more. The land in Israel, 93% uh, of the land belonged to the state. And uh, so in, in, in the, the, the dismemberment of the labor movement uh, happened more or less with the downfall of communism. Although Israel wasn't a communist, but there was something that in that atmosphere and the change is from, it's like the change, let's say in Hungary and Poland from the communist era to people like Urban or the Kaczynski brothers and Netanyahu belongs to exactly this kind of populist. So there are those dramatic changes. And uh, yes, I mean, it was a, a model state, partly on the expense of ignoring the Palestinians, the Palestinians refugees. So the Israel shined, but people ignored, definitely the Israelis ignored that, the other, that on the other side of the border, there are refugees from the war of 48. So it was a shining city on the hill, but there were some dark sides to it even then, absolutely. I remember Michael Walser, he wrote a book a couple of years ago where he compared Israel to one of the Islamic countries and to India. And usually from Denmark, when we see the history of Israel, we see that through the conflict with the Palestinians. But he compared how the liberalism came into a, a crisis in Israel to how it came into a crisis in India and one of the Muslim countries, I don't remember which, but the point was that actually what we see everywhere is that a kind of traditionalism is returning, religious foundations for, for, for politics is emerging, not out of the conflict with the Palestinians, but as a kind of backlash to a modernization pro process. How do you see this? That's, that changed in Israel? No, I think that, the, that uh, Walzer's analogy is a deep analogy. And Modi and Netanyahu that I mentioned, I think are standing for something similar. And the, the Hinduism, in the, the resurgence of the Hinduism in, and the clash with the Muslims in, in India is not unsimilar to what happens in Israel. The size is so, I mean, the magnitudes are such that Israel is not, is a, is not even a suburb of Calcutta. But, uh, but in, apart from the size, I think there is something to say to, for this analogy. And it's disturbing in the same way for Nehru and Gandhi trying, at least Nehru trying to create an encompassing society to a society that basically tries on ethnic and religious ground to create, to endowed citizenship in the full-fledged only to your ethnic group, or the dominant ethnic and religious group. And I think that in all the populist countries, the anti-immigration and the, whether it's 
whether it's Salvini or Le Pen or whatever, you see one, I think, one trend, and that's to narrow down the concept of citizenship from civic citizenship to ethnic citizenship. And I think that this is very strong in all those places. So in that sense, those analogies are helpful, I think. There are things which are unique to Israel and distinct, but some of the analogies, I think, hold water, yes. Some years ago, we were always saying that Israel was the democracy in the Middle East, that they had the kind of, you had the kind of moral upper hand of being of being the demo- democracy. So, and that would people on the left would say, that's why we should criticize them more because they're able to hold their, their leaders accountable. People on the right would say, that's why they, what they're doing has more legitimacy than what their enemies are doing. If you look at the last, the, these last election cycle and this, this whole drama with the, the prime minister who's under investigation for corruption, but couldn't be held accountable because he, he, was still, he was still under some kind of uh, immunity. How would you characterize the state of Israeli democracy today? It's definitely, it's, the Israelis define it as Jewish and democratic. The trouble that it's Jewish for the, in that it's democratic for the Jews and Jewish for the Arabs. And that's, I think, part of the problem. Namely, Jews obviously live in a democratic state, the citizens, the Jewish citizens. The Palestinian who are citizens of Israel participate in political life, but they are discriminated against for a long time. So, for example, 700 settlements, new towns, villages, and so on, were established in Israel from 48. None of them is an Arab village or or town or anything. So you see that, I mean, the, the problem there, and I'm not talking about the West Bank and Gaza, not about the problem. There are problems already inside Israel, but at least, there I am more hopeful that uh, eventually the citizen rights will be upheld. The problem is, more urgent problem, is the human rights in the occupied territories. And that's far more urgent than the citizen rights of the Palestinians inside Israel. Do you see to a certain extent, uh, the last confrontation between Israel and Hamas with a lot of casualties and many children die. I think the overall impression here is that it just exaggerates the hopelessness, that nothing good comes out of, of that and that it's, it strengthens parts of Palestinians uh, that, that, that are not helpful for them in the long run and that it also strengthens militant aspects of of, of Israel. But then there are others saying, well, that the dynamics changed this time, that you saw some solidarity with between Arabs in Israel and, and uh, some of the Palestinians in the occupied territories. Do you see a dynamic changing or something hopeful in the last confrontation? I see both. I, mean, I know it sounds contradictory, but the, the two aspects run together. 
On the one hand, there is something really hopeless, rounds and rounds of violence every three, four years and uh, with devastation. And there is no way to act, to operate in Gaza, with, which is the sort of, is a huge jail, condensed. I mean, the, 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 popula the population that is two million in an area which is ridiculously narrow which is, it is encircled on, from three, on three sides by the Israelis, but one side by the Egyptians, and they are fully responsible for what happens in Gaza. The siege on Gaza is done from all sides, both from the Israelis and the Egyptians. And the situation in Gaza strikes me as hopeless in many ways. What, what did happen in the last round of violence is that illusion, especially the illusion of the right in Israel, that we can safely ignore the Palestinian by divide and rule, namely creating segmentations of, of various areas of this kind of Palestinians, Palestinians inside the wall of Jerusalem, Palestinian outside the wall of Jerusalem, of things of that kind, that we can manage a colonial rule with no costs. That was the feeling for quite a while. And this suddenly, the last round created, brought back the real problem of the Palestinians, both in the occupied territories, namely in the West Bank and in Gaza, and also among Israeli Arab citizens that on the one hand tried to belong to Israel, at least politically, and then on the other hand, they feel the force of solidarity with the Gaza and the, with the West Bank. So the good thing, asked about the dynamics. Yes, exactly. Is that suddenly, the Palestinian issue was brought back to center stage. And it was for a long time, it was ignored. And many people thought that it can be safely ignored. And this was an illusion. Do you see any ways that we, you know, all over the world, we see progressive movements erupting these years, an enormous eruption of progressive movements. Some are very strong and some actually generate real change. You look at the climate movement, how it changed in Europe and in America, even Great Britain under Boris Johnson now. Some are more useless or they're not able to translate their momentum into real institutional change. Do you see that this recognition of the Palestine problem and the movements, do you see them translating into the political system in Israel? It no, I mean, the short answer is no, and the long answer is so long that it will take all your time. So let me say this. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't see an immediate way of translating, let's call it the left program in the wide sense, namely two-state solution, or, or something along this line, 
more or less along the the 67 border as the as a dividing line and then land exchange or something along and then solving the problem of Jerusalem this the right is still dominates the scene very strong and I don't see in the immediate future the left translating it into serious program and action. The only thing in which the reason why I'm fairly slightly optimistic is that I don't think that there was any important event in the Middle East that happened that anyone predicted it <laughs> or predicted it for the right reasons. I mean, even, I mean, who would predict that Sadat will come and strike a deal with Israel and there'll be peace between Egypt and Israel? This was inconceivable. And so the reason why I'm hope, more hopeful is that we are not good in predicting. So you try your best, like an economic startup. Most of the startups fail and, uh, and you do your best and maybe we, we will overcome, yes. I think that's such a funny point because here in the newspaper, you know, you always try to predict political events and you always try to analyze the situation. And you know, it's just the most hopeless task because we never predicted anything. All our predictions prove futile. Yes, I mean, analysis is, I mean, there are things which you know, I'm sure enough. And that's the two dimensions of the conflict. Namely, that between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, see, there are 50% Palestinians and 50% Jews, more or less. That's, this is not going to change. The Palestinians don't go anywhere. And this is a stable thing, more or less. The second, uh, there are people maybe in, in, on the right that entertain the thought that they will expel the Palestinians. Let us assume that they will, they will be successful in expelling half a million. Still the problem is there. And therefore, the, the mere fact of the population and the land, which are given more or less, forces in the long run, the two sides, to tackle the problem. That's my, that's, I think, I am fairly certain. When, how, in what way, I'm clueless. <laughs> that is a very, it's a very beautiful answer because it, you managed to find a dynamic that actually will be hopeful in the long run. And I want, <clears throat> we often discuss here in the newspaper how we should analyze this conflict morally. Because, you know, from the left, we used to say that the, uh, that the oppressed people are always right. That we would always say that there is a dominant player in the conflict. They have the superiority. So they bear the moral responsibility of the conflict. And the others, they don't have any moral responsibility. On the other hand, if you really want to make progress, you must look at the other side as moral responsible agents. And you must always also say that, that every population has a certain responsibility for who they're represented by. So this makes it very difficult for me to analyze the symmetry of moral responsibility between the Israelis and the Palestinians. 
Do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, absolutely. The trouble is that I understand it too well. <laughs> Let me start with a sort of with a big claim and then zoom in. Yes. The big claim is that if you take the world before First World War, 85% of the planet was under colonial rule. Today, there are only two countries that run colonial rule. One is China in Tibet, and one is Israel in the West Bank and in Gaza in a way. Now, colonial rule, there were different kinds of colonial rule. Some of them were even beneficial. I mean, some of the countries suffered from the fact that they, they weren't under colonial rule, like Afghanistan. Afghanistan would have maybe been better off with a colonial rule for a while. But that's a patronizing way. Colonial rule is a rotten situation, humanly unacceptable. And today, the anachronism of colonial rule is such that it's like, it's, it's indefensible. It's indefensible in, which, in, in the sense in which slavery is indefensible. And therefore, I take the main burden, the moral burden of those on us and on the Chinese that run this kind of rule. It, it's not necessarily the worst in the world. There are many countries which have indigenous ruling and they are in a worse situation. But there is something deeply humiliating in the colonial rule, namely the, the sense of supremacy and the sense of inferiority on the other side. This kind of thing, I think, is deeply humanly hurting. And therefore, I think the main burden is on us. Yes, I mean, there are lots, of, I have lots of criticism of the other side, but that's too easy. And the, what is too easy about it is the following. There is no justice in the Islamic family. There is no justice in the tribal the Islamic ruling. There is no justice in the Islamic states. So from all the world, the people you, you ask for justice are the Jews in Israel. That's in a way already an ironic stand. If you don't find justice anywhere from all the world, that's what you find bothering. There is something. And yet, but that's this ironic situation, or maybe tragic situation, doesn't free me from taking really sharing the responsibility of what I think is indefensible, namely a colonial rule. I want to jump a little bit because there are some questions from your books that I must ask you. You, you wrote a book that came out some years ago uh, about compromise and rotten compromise. And I think I want to recommend it to everyone. It's an absolutely wonderful book because there are so many compromises required in the world we live in. And we don't talk enough about when compromise is justified and when it's not justified. And we don't see actually compromise as a heroic act. And you, there's a beautiful phrase in the book that you say, 
that compromise reveals to us who we are and ideals show who, who we want to be. Could you first explain the distinction between the compromise and the rotten compromise or when a compromise that could be shabby or morally bad, when does the compromise become rotten and thus morally prohibited? A rotten compromise, you strike a rotten compromise when you do it with a regime which is cruel and humiliating. I mean, an inhuman regime. And uh, that's a rotten compromise. If you encourage, help uh, such regime, that's a rotten compromise. Other compromises, some of them are bad, some of them are shabby, some of them are shoddy. There are all sorts of degrees of goodness and badness in compromises. But rotten compromise is the absolute evil, is absolutely evil. Namely, compromise with people who don't treat humans as human beings. And that, I think, is the limit. So I'm, I'm, my book is all for compromises, including pretty shabby ones. And one of them is the claim, especially you, you asked me about the other side, the demand is for a just peace. I mean, most of the Palestinians and our world, they wanted a just peace. And I think, and I want just a peace. And, the, and that's, that's already a huge compromise from their side. Namely, if you dream on a just peace, there will be no peace. There will be a, a permanent feud with blood dripping all the time. And the, com the compromise there is giving up on the idea of a just peace for the sake of just a peace. And uh, that's, that's, I think, is that. Because, you know, uh, here in Denmark, we made a compromise with the Nazi Germanys. We, we did that uh, and we let them occupy us. And we, we said, well, you can, you, you can manage Denmark if you allow us to run it ourselves in the daily business. We saved a lot of Danish lives. And we were able to, to save hundreds of Jewish lives because of that compromise. But, and this newspaper was born as a resistance movement against that compromise because we thought it was absolutely unacceptable. So it's absolutely unacceptable. We made a compromise in a privileged, well-educated, rich country, we made a compromise with the worst regime of the 20th century. On the other hand, I, I often think that, so we could have fought them for three days. It would have cost maybe 50,000 Danish people, Danish lives. It would have cost Jewish lives. We would have saved our honor. It wouldn't make any change to world history. And I'm very curious whether the, this politics of cooperation, whether that qualifies as a rotten compromise. First of all, I think Denmark behaved very nobly with the Jews, rescuing the Jews. This is not a trivial heroic case. This is really an exemplary case of really defending, it was basically the only country successfully defended Jewish 
And I think that, and not because I'm a Jew, I think this is the litmus case for, for judging. So I think there is a great deal of difference between Sweden, the neutrality, so to speak, of Sweden, which is in many cases tilted towards the Germans, and Denmark, when there was a resistance uh, movement. But the question that you ask, I deal with it in the book on betrayal when I deal with collaboration. Exactly. And uh, it so happened that countries that collaborated with the Germans saved more Jews, apart from Croatia. In Croatia, it was, the nastiness was over. But if you take France or Belgium, if you take Belgium and compare it to Holland, uh, well, I think those collaborating countries saved. But, and yet, I think the kind of compromises that they struck, they were forced in many cases, but in France, there was a degree of freedom to the Vichy regime. And I think in many cases, it was rotten. Whether it was rotten all around, that's a different question. But uh, there were definitely parts of it that were deeply rotten, yes. I have another question, something that I think in this age is very, very difficult, is the question about migration. Because here in Europe, we, we've let uh, Erdogan, he, he controls the European border. We say we have democracy, human rights, refugee convention respected here in the European Union. In order to become a member state, you must respect human rights. And we give people asylum if they knock on our door and if they, are, if they can show that they're, they're in danger. And, but that is on the premise that Erdogan holds the door for them, that he is actually, it's his door that they're knocking on. And morally, for me, indefensible. But on the other hand, if we did not do that, if we didn't have this deal with Erdogan, then we would have many more coming to Europe. We would have a risk of right-wing populist governments in Southern Europe, and we would probably lose the legitimacy of the human rights here in Europe. So our, and I think this must be a rotten compromise, is that the only way we can maintain universal human rights here in Europe is to exclude other people from, from, from being part of, uh, from being protected by human rights and letting regimes like Libya and Turkey doing the, the be, protecting our border. Our humanism is protected by something that's not human. I mean, it, it, it's such a difficult dilemma for me. It's not for you, it's for all. I really believe that the, the theory of justice was confined usually to states with stable population and stable borders. And then the question was, what about distributive justice, how to allocate among the population the goods that the, that the state created or the people in the population created. I believe the most pressing problem in theory of justice is immigration. Whom to include in and whom to exclude. 
it's clear that someone who is poor in Copenhagen is infinitely better than someone in, uh, in Nigeria who is poor in Nigeria. There is no comparison. So the issue of how exactly to manage immigration and what is the right approach to immigration, that's, I think, will plague us in the coming century, in the coming centuries. And the main thing now is first to think hard about the solution. But the issue in Europe, I think, is exactly the issue of narrowing down the notion of citizenship, namely that treating the gast arbeiters as guests and that should behave well in order even to be acceptable. And if not, they are basically, they don't have rights in the full strength of the term as, as citizens, but they are on conditional citizens. Now, I think in some countries, I think there was a change. I think there was change in Scandinavia. Scandinavia hadn't had people from those parts of the world at all. I don't know what is the percentage now, whether it's 8% or 9%. This is already a change. And I think uh, a, a welcoming change. But if you ask me, what is the right policy? The general principles that should guide immigration, here I have a sh only a short answer. I don't know. I really don't. And what you describe as a horrible dilemma, it's a horrible dilemma. I really don't know. All I know that uh, I know it by comparison. I think that what Merkel did with the immigration was a noble act. Although this is just taking youngsters who can work in the right age and actually share with the insurance with the health insurance of the old generation in Germany and so on. And when all it's said and done, others didn't do it. And Germany did it. And I think there was something noble about it. So I can make comparisons and ask wh whether this is better than that. But if you ask me about the general principles that guide me with respect to immigration, I really don't know what to do. I think, and, and I think none of us really knows what to do, but I think that it's an urgent question for us to avoid that what you could call a kind of democratic realism. Well, the majority of people do not want us to treat them well. The majority of people, they say, well, we become racist if we take too many. That is kind of the democratic realism of Europe. That's uh, in all European countries, I think that the majorities want that. But then there's the danger that this turns into moral cynicism. So you celebrate people who say, well, we must do that. I know it's difficult to let people drown in the Mediterranean, but we must do that. This is a patriotic act of defending our own societies. And I wonder how people will look at that in 50 years or so. No, I think, first of all, that you're right, that there is a strong ideology of majoritarianism that the ethnic and religious group that dominates a certain area 
they have it all. If they have the majority in a democratic way, they are entitled to all. Minorities are just mere nuisance. And I think this is not just in Europe. I think that we talked about in India. And I think that, and actually, this was also in, in Burma, or what used to be called in Burma, the Rohingya. So in a way, majoritarianism is a menace to democracy. It's, I don't take sheer majoritarianism as a criterion of democracy. And I would even start with how you treat the minorities as the test case, rather than what are the rights of the majority to do. And uh, in that sense, just say, we save how many you can observe and without ruining your way of life, that's a serious question. And what it takes to, and what exactly is the rate of burden of accepting people who are knocking on your door, that's a serious problem. I still believe that the world is international and not cosmopolitan. And I think it's right, those who think that cosmo, there is no politics to cosmopolitics. That's the trouble with cosmopolitanism. And therefore, there is no world citizenship. It will be still citizenship within confined countries and states. And therefore, how exactly to manage the immigration, as I said, as in, on the general principle, that's hard. It's really hard to solve, but that's, I think, philosophers and people who care about those things and care about theory of justice. I think immigration should be on the top of the list. I have one last question for you because time is running. There are so many questions I'd love to ask you, but something that always struck me when I read your books is that there's a very genuine interest in the social plays, the social phenomena. And, and, and I think it's just a brilliant move to say, well, the deficiency of liberalism is fraternity. Let us study fraternity through the concept of betrayal. I, I love that, that, that way of analyzing ideas through the social relations. And, but you always put a primacy on the social. It's always the concept of of betrayal or compromise or something that is between people. And often in liberal philosophy, a lot of our history, you start with the individual. You say, in order to be a good citizen, you must become a good person. In order to become a moral agent in the sense of Kant, you must control yourself. But you put, it seems to me, you always put the primacy on the social and then the individual is not that interesting. Why is it, and I love it. It's very, very interesting reading it. Uh, but, but what are your own reflections on that, on that choice? Two things. I mean, f philosophy and especially ethics, Aristotle and others started with exactly with the idea of virtues, of what are the good properties that human beings should hold and esteem. And the problem was about building, building of character and moral character. I think that people who are queuing for bus in Copenhagen can queue politely and easily. 
unlike people who are queuing in Cairo for the bus, which is not coming regularly, in which they have to go all the way back for hours to the village. And where, I mean, people are, have no seats and no. So the issue is, I don't think that Danes by nature are better people than the, the, the Egyptians. I think that exactly those conditions make them behave better simply by the mere fact that the transportation in Copenhagen is infinitely better than in other places. So I know it may trivialize the idea, but the main thing is that I'm, I'm not a believer in character, namely in human stable traits. Uh, I'm not the only one, there is a great deal of psychology that goes with it. I mean, take for example, the word courage. You, can, you know people who are very courageous in the battle and timid when it comes to being engaged in public affairs. I mean, courage is, depends on the situation and not a, it's not a stable trait. So I don't believe the, in edifying the individuals as the necessary condition. And I think that there was something right in Marx in deciding to start with human relations as the basic premise for all the rest. And sometimes those are close relations and sometimes are remote relations. And uh, I was thinking before about Denmark and uh, about what I call thick relations and thin relation and family as, as the basis of thick relations. And uh, three years ago, I think, there was a television program and there was this famous actress, Scarlett Ingrid Johnson. Yes. And there is nothing more Scandinavian than Ingrid Johnson, Johnson or whatever. And what I have to do with her. But she participated in a program of tracing down her family roots from her mother's side. And it turned out that she ended up by reading a testimonial of my mother and, it, and that my grandfather and her mother grandfather were brothers. One ended up in Europe and was killed in Auschwitz, and the other went to the United States. I, I, I was clueless. I didn't know about it a thing. So suddenly, I'm related <laughs> to them. And it's interesting. I wanted to establish relate, to know about it. And my children completely refused. They thought it's undignified. It's like people from the old country kind to nude you as if they want, they are needy and needs your help. And they thought it's undignified. So there was a real clash. And, uh, and what cement human relation, as you can see, is a very complicated. That's my story about my relation with Scandinavia. Thank you very much. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. 
Thank you for your work and everything you've done. You've helped us reflect and keep our intellectual courage. Thank you so much, Avishai Margaret. Thank you. Det var så min samtale med Avishai Margaret. I næste uge skal jeg tale med en indisk forfatter, der hedder Amitav Ghosh, som har skrevet en af de absolut bedste bøger, jeg har læst om klimakrisen. Hans pointe er, at klimakrisen er en krise i vores kultur, i vores fantasi, i vores litteratur. Og at hele vores kulturelle kanon, vores politiske begreber, vores filosofiske idéer, kommer fra en verden, hvor klimakrise ikke var en realitet. Derfor skal vi tænke vores begreber og fortællinger igennem fra bunden, hvis vi skal lave en realisme, der svarer til det 21. århundredes realiteter, hvor klimakrisen er den helt store trussel. Vi høres ved i næste uge.